0: Let me start by giving you a good old chimpanzee greeting. And that means, this is me, this is Jane. In
1: 1960, Dr. Jane Goodall walked into Gombe Stream National Park in Tanzania and changed the world forever. Jane Goodall, tall, blonde, and beautiful. Living with the chimpanzees in the wilds of Africa. Dr. Goodall discovered that chimpanzees used grass stems to help them hunt for termites.
0: And as we all know now, that they feel emotion and have distinct personalities.
1: Her research on chimpanzees upended our perception of their interaction with the natural world and each other. She observed them behaving in familiar human modes, and challenged herself to engage with them as fellow conscious beings, not just scientific subjects. So, what makes us human? And how can we both admire our unique gifts and not forget that we are just one small connected part of something vast and grand?
0: We are part of this incredible animal Kingdom. The more we learn about it, the more we learn about ourselves. And I'm sure you agree with me that only when head and heart work in harmony can we achieve our true human potential.
1: I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Today, Dr. Jane Goodall is the world's foremost expert on chimpanzees, one of the most respected voices in the world, and she's still a woman on a mission. As I learned in our recent conversation, Dr. Goodall has always approached things a little differently.
0: My mother tells stories about when I was very small. I was four and a half. We lived in London at that time. Not so many animals there. And mum took me for a holiday on a farm in the country. And it was really exciting. I can still remember meeting cows and pigs and and sheep face to face.
1: The old English pastoral scene. That's
0: right. And um, I was given a job of collecting the hen's eggs. So the hens pecked around in the farmyard. but there were about, I don't know, six or eight hen houses where they slept at night with nest boxes around the edge. So I would go around and if there was an egg, I popped it in my basket. Apparently I began asking everybody, but where's the hole that the egg comes out of? Because I couldn't see a hole that big. And clearly nobody told me. So I distinctly remember seeing this brown hen going up into a hen house I must have thought you know, she's going to lay an egg ha, crawled after her of course that was a mistake she flew out with squawks of presumably fear and so my little four and a half year old mind must have thought no hen will lay an egg here, it's a dangerous place but now I'm on the path of discovery so I went into an empty hen house I waited quietly, and the hen came in finally, and I still can see her rising a little bit on her legs, and this white slightly soft uh, egg coming out Mum had been desperately looking for me, nobody knew where I was they'd called the police so you can imagine how worried she was but when she saw this excited little girl rushing towards the house, instead of How dare you go off without telling us, don't you dare do that again? She saw my shining eyes and sat down to hear the wonderful story of how a hen lays an egg. And the reason I tell that story, isn't that the making of a little scientist? Curiosity, asking questions, not getting the right answer, deciding to find out for yourself, making a mistake, not giving up and learning patience, it was all there and a different kind of mother might have crushed that scientific curiosity and I might not have done what I have done.
1: You know, it's a long way from hens to uh, primates and ultimately the chimpanzee, which has maybe more than 98% of its genetic structure, similar to ours. What was your first experience with, uh, with a chimp?
0: running away from me. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They'd never seen a white ape before. Yes. And this was Gombe National Park. It yes. took a long time, a lot of patience. But remember, I learned that in the hen house. And finally, one of them had this beautiful white beard, and I called him David Graybeard. And he began to let me get closer. And uh-huh. it was David Graybeard who gave me a very... I don't know what kind of moment to call it, sort of not life-changing, but something which made me realize this is going to be my life because he had just begun to allow me to actually follow him. And he was going through the forest and I was going after him. And then he went through a thick tangle of vegetation. I lost him and I thought, well, I'll find him another day. But when I finally got through, He was sitting looking back and it looked as though he was waiting for me and maybe he was, I don't know. So he was sitting and I sat and between us was a ripe red palm nut, which they love. And so I picked it up and held it out to him on my hand and he turned his face away. So I put my hand closer and he reached out, he took the nut, he dropped it, but very gently squeezed my fingers. And that's how chimpanzees reassure each other. So in that moment, we communicated in a way which must have predated human language. Language.
1: He was saying thank you, in a way.
0: In a way, yes.
1: Do chimps have guilt or shame or humiliation or disgust (laughs) or frustration?
0: (laughs) I, I'm never totally sure about some of those emotions, you know, right. because it's very easy for us to say, well, if we were in that situation, we'd be feeling ashamed or guilty. Yeah. They, and, and are they learning um, that doing this is wrong because they have been punished and therefore it, it's, a, it's a confused… But an, don't
1: and, they have some kind of social hierarchical… Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And the males fight for it. And some of the ways that they posture and gesture and swagger around reminds me so much of some politicians. (sighs) And so it's very important uh, for some males, not all. They're all different. Some want to uh, get to the top. And some do it by using their intelligence. They find an ally, either a, a convenient one at the time or maybe a permanent one like your brother. And they only tackle a higher ranking when that ally is there. Others just storm in and want to use their strength and their aggressive natures to get to the top. Those ones don't last as long as the intelligent ones.
1: But as soon as you introduce this hierarchy of um, social status, whether it's humans or primates, I think then there's the opportunity to evolve these emotions, guilt, shame, mistrust.
0: I'm sure um, they have those feelings. Yeah. It's just, what does it mean when a chimp behaves as though he's ashamed? I don't exactly know. I haven't managed to get that far into a chimp's mind. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure people will. And you know, to go away from chimps for a moment, we had a dog at home and he knew it was bad to steal because he was punished for stealing. So sometimes we'd get back and he wasn't visible anywhere and we'd find him curled up in a chair and he had stolen a pack of food, but he hadn't eaten it. He was lying on it. So he knew it was wrong. feeling guilty. And he was feeling guilty. So if dogs can, of course chimps can feel guilty. Now, of course, I think
1: um, Rupert Sheldrake is a common friend of ours. Um, And Rupert goes on to even think that... uh, Dogs uh, have um, paranormal or psychic abilities Mm -hmm. that they can read your mind. And even, you know, if if a dog uh, owner or the human companion of a dog is, say, in London and the dog is in Paris and he changes his mind and wants to come home earlier, the dog moves to the front of the house, waits at the door as soon as the human companion has had an intention to return home. What's your opinion on all this?
0: Well, um, the strangest one, most fascinating to me, was with this parrot called Ankisi. I, I heard there was this psychic parrot mm-hmm. and this experiment with five envelopes with pictures in. Nobody knew the pictures, but what the pictures were, except this one woman who didn't know anything about the parrot or anything. She just had to choose five pictures and put them in envelopes. And as the um, Amy opens the first envelope, Kesey was in another room, and I've been there. I've seen you know. There's no way he could see oh, you've or seen hear. This? Yes.
1: Oh my God! I've and read about it, but no, I've no, never I've, seen. No, I've met
0: them many times. I see. So as she opens the first one, it's a photograph of flowers, um, straggly ones, mm-hmm. and Kesey's kind of murmuring, "Pretty flowers, nice flowers." Yeah, you've well really. And then she opens the second one, which is a man on his cell phone, very clearly. What are you saying on your cell phone? The only mistake that he makes out of these five is a rather peculiar picture of a man stepping out of a car and he's sort of half in, half out. And the word on the word is car, so Kesey's supposed to say car, but he doesn't. He says, what are you doing with your head out there? Put your head back in. Careful.
1: Why is this not a breakthrough, revolutionary insight into the nature of consciousness?
0: Well, I think it is. And you know, I was told anecdotes were not scientific and I shouldn't use anecdotes. And to me, anecdotes are the breakthrough into the mind. Anecdotes are things which help you to understand. And
1: science is an anecdote too. I mean, you know, you make (laughs) observations, experiments, and then you tell a story, right? (laughs) But why doesn't the why isn't the world talking about it, you know?
0: I think science is is, uh, very reluctant. It's got to be proved about 29 times.
1: And yet scientists frequently get stuck on their assumptions.
0: They do. Yeah. They do, and they they don't like them challenged.
1: So this distinction between pure instinct, and uh, which is for survival, and emotion, which is kind of survival, but also there's an element of empathy and um, what we humans would call compassion and love. Um, but there's an element of that in all sentient. Uh, Life. Uh, are you kind of um, sympathetic to that worldview or you think that all sentience has some level of uh, emotional consciousness?
0: I think they do. And unfortunately, we see an element of aggression and, you know, the dark side of human nature. We see that.
1: You were one of the first uh, to identify that, that the dark side of humans is also present in mm. and chimps. Huh?
0: Do you remember... Deepak that in the early 70s yes. the, the subject of whether humans were born with a blank slate right. or whether they had inherited aggressive or other instincts mm-hmm. and it became a political issue Yes, and I remember going to this big conference in I think it was Paris mm-hmm. and about aggression and <laughs> when I talked about the aggression in the chimps people cold-shouldered me. (laughs) And I was actually told that I should not talk about that, that I should downplay it, because then people might think that we humans have an aggressive instinct. But we do. Of course we do. Look around the world. How can you deny it? But at that time, ethologists were trying to push Mm. it under the carpet.
1: Mm.
0: And luckily, you know, my mother taught me to have the courage of my conviction and, and not to give in. Otherwise, I wouldn't have published any of that stuff.
1: Well, that insight is very helpful in understanding our own nature, but also the nature of life in general. In the sense, the whole ecosystem is is a combination of this symbiosis and predation at the same time. I mean, we're all part of the food chain, but we also have a deep... Uh, Longing to understand our connection to all of life. I mean, that's one thing that humans really uh, are, in a way, different from other species, in that we question. The we ask questions. Of, uh, we ask these questions. Who yeah. are we? Why Who? are we
0: here? Yeah. What is the meaning of my life?
1: And then we tell stories. And we make them up. When we come back, we'll tell more stories with Dr. Jane Goodall. Life can be stressful between work, family, and everything in between. It's not always easy to find time for yourself. That's where Talkspace comes in. Talkspace is therapy for how we live today. Talkspace Online Therapy makes taking care of your mental health more affordable and convenient than ever before. Simply provide your preferences for therapy and Talkspace will match with one of your 3,000 plus therapists the very same day. Send your therapist unlimited text, audio, picture or video messages from anywhere at any time. No matter what you're going through, you're not alone. Talkspace has more than 3,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code Deepak to get $45 off your first month and show your support for this show. That's Deepak and Talkspace.com. Join more than one million people who feel happier with TalkSpace. The fact that I'm speaking to you right now and that you're listening and hopefully understanding is pretty amazing. And while it connects us, some would say it's what separates us humans from the rest of the animal kingdom, which is what I wanted to ask Dr. Jane Goodall about. So this uh, brings me to this question regarding language, because deep historians tell us, some of them, that up until, say, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, there were many species of humans, you know, Neanderthals and Homo habilis, erectus, Mm, on and on, till one species, uh, sapiens, us, created a language for gossip and storytelling. We started giving names to perceptual experience and calling them objects, I mean, and giving names to other animals. It's part of our story of um, everything in creation we've given a word to. But as soon as we start telling stories, then, you know, the more outrageous the stories are, Uh, We are the best species and, you know, we know how to love. The more sophisticated those stories get, the more actually we lose our connection to the source of all existence and this is the fall from grace. And in this new dimensionality of experience, you've kind of separated yourself from all that exists.
0: I mean, I, you know, always... I'm amazed at how similar we are to chimpanzees and for that matter other animals too, you know, sharing emotions like fear and pain and anger and things like that. But clearly we're different for the reasons that you've just been talking about. And so we developed this way of using words in our talk. So for the first time we could actually teach our children about things that weren't actually present because chimpanzees learn by observing. And so, yes, they have a culture, behavior passed from one generation to the next through observation, imitation, and practice. But, you know, we can, with words, discuss the past and tell stories about it and perhaps make use of it. Chimpanzees certainly can make plans for the immediate future but we can make plans for what we're going to do 10 years ahead. And most important of all, we can discuss. So if we have a problem, we can bring people from different walks of life with different experiences to try and solve that problem. So isn't it bizarre that the most intellectual creature to ever walk the planet is destroying its only home, It seems to me there's a disconnect between this extremely intellectual mind and the human heart, which is love and compassion.
1: In the wisdom tradition of the East, there's uh, in Sanskrit, there's a word called pragyaparad, which translated into English means the mistake of the intellect. And that the mistake of the intellect is that we are separate from everything else and our wow.
0: children today look at look at them they grow up in bricks and, and cement and concrete and they're on their little electronic gadgets and they'll sit next to each other in a bus instead of talking what's happening to us
1: <laughs> it's evolution um, on a self um, destructive mode right totally, now totally
0: we're destroying ourselves yes we are because we I- need the, 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 the planet we need the, the natural world and if we go on destroying it, destroying the forest, polluting the oceans and all the rest of it, we will destroy ourselves.
1: Actually, you're reminding me of something that I learned recently uh, from um, some naturalists. And um, this is the phenomenon that uh, now biology is exploring is what they call being grounded. So when uh, you walk barefoot on the earth or when you walk barefoot uh, on the grass or on the beach, or even when you touch a tree, you are electromagnetically connected to the electromagnetic fields of the planet. And um, in a sense, you're reorganizing or resetting your biological rhythms with the rhythms of nature. So this particular person was a naturalist was telling me that when animals get uh, sick or whatever, they burrow themselves in the ground or sit in the ground until they recover. And so one of the things that's happened with uh, modern society is our biology is out of sync with the biology of nature. It's a biological organism, whether we like it or not. It's a self-regulating biological phenomenon, including the web of life. And I'm doing some research on this right now and looking at how when people are grounded, even if I touch a tree and you touch me and somebody else touches you, we're all resetting our biological rhythms. I wonder what you think about
0: this. Well, I think we have to add into this equation the fact that, you know, so much of what's out there has been so polluted with... um, chemicals, the way we farm, the the food we eat. It's very hard. You have to go quite far to get into sort of real untouched nature. And the real untouched nature is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So I suppose in your research, you'll take into account the fact that because we developed electricity... We now don't have this sort of cycle that an animal will have where it goes to sleep, sleep when it's dark side. and yes. it wakes up when it's light, but we, we pay no attention to that.
1: And ever since Edison invented the light bulb. <laughs> yes.
0: <you> know, it, <laughs> but we what? can't do
1: without it now.
0: Well, we could do yeah. without it. It's like, you know, we with what we're doing to the planet, we could actually do without oil and gas. I mean, it would be very hard.
1: Um, the technologies but, already exist. Yes. To
0: but but we could that. not do without water. Yes. And fresh water supplies Orp. are endangered. And you know something? This was one uh, I don't know if you can explain this, but I was in Bordeaux just recently on a climate change conference, and I was just thinking, it was being translated, you see, bit by bit. So I was just thinking, next I'm going to talk about water. And how if we lose our water, you know, that'll be the the next wars. And there were three big glass water bottles on the table (laughs) in front. And as I was thinking, this is what I'm going to talk about. One of those bottles cracked and the water dropped onto the floor. So I've kept that bottle. And um, because to me, it's incredibly symbolic. To me, symbols are very important. Very
1: important. So this brings uh, actually a very important question that I want to ask you as a scientist without actually enraging current thinking on evolutionary biology. Are we a species that has evolved as a result of some direction by a deeper intelligence or consciousness um, that is in a way guiding the evolution of species. I know this would be very controversial and might enrage strict physicalists or materialists, but just seems to me that evolution is kind of directed in a way of more creativity, more questioning, more um, inquiry, and more even abstraction as we start to get into realms of thought, from tools to now the internet and now intergalactic space exploration, it doesn't seem altogether random to me.
0: I, I don't think for one single second it's random. And you know, when I was out in the rainforest, mm-hmm. Out in the rainforest you're in the middle of an ecosystem where the interrelation of all things is so clear Clear. and each tiny little species has a role to play and it may seem insignificant but if it disappears that can have a ripple effect because maybe that was the main food source of some other creature and so on, and that can lead to ecosystem collapse, Mm -hmm. losing just one little species.
1: You know, this is a very Buddhist uh, thought that we are inter-beings, that inter-arise in this inter-isness in Buddhist terms that all sentient beings are part of an infinite consciousness and that sentient beings, what we call biological organisms, are actually species of consciousness as sentient beings and they're all part of this web of life and uh, if you fiddle with even one little strand in the web, the whole web is affected.
0: The web of life, we meddle with it to our peril and we're already meddling, aren't we, too much?
1: After the break, what happens When survival instincts of humans and chimps collide. Stay with us. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks. And keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of infinite potential a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up At infinite.robinhood.com. I understand that being able to practice mindfulness every day is something we all want to achieve. Sometimes it can be really hard when we are overwhelmed with work and other aspects of life. There is an app I highly recommend which might help you to be more mindful every day. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read or listen to. With an audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go. I like Blinkist because it opens a door for people who may be too busy with the stresses of life, family and work to read everything they might want. Right now for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to blinkist.com/infinite to start your free 7-day trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com/infinite to start your free 7-day trial. Again, that's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T Blinkist.com slash infinite. Now, let's return to our conversation with Dr. Jane Goodall. The chimps... Uh have a sense of humor?
0: Oh, yes, they do. Yeah? <laughs> My favorite sense of humor, though, is Coco the gorilla, Yes. the, the signing gorilla. Yes,
1: yes. And
0: there was a young woman and she went into the um, lab, she was volunteering, and she was told, occupy Coco while we prepare Coco's supper. Uh-huh. So as Coco had just learned all the colors, not just the primaries, but all of them, so this young woman is picking up something that's blue and something that's green and Uh, Then she picks up a white cloth and Coco signs red. And the young woman says, oh, Coco, you know better than that. What color is this? Red. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coco, if you don't tell me what color this is, you won't have apple juice for supper. Coco reaches out, takes the white cloth, picks off a minute speck of red fluff and says, red, red, red.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. The notion that humour can be a shared language between humans and chimps, made me think about another story. The story is about a man named Rick and a chimp named Jojo, and about the way we are instinctively connected to each other, and maybe at a very deep level, to all living beings.
0: Oh, yes, Rick and Jojo. Let's hear that story. I'll tell you, but I have to tell two stories because they're opposite side of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So Jojo was a chimpanzee who is in a zoo and he had lived in that zoo for many, many years by himself. So he wasn't very good at interacting socially when they rescued him and put him with this group on an island uh, because chimps don't swim. And... He sort of started getting on, but then one day a male is challenging him. Jojo's terrified and he's so frightened he gets over the barrier and falls into the deep water beyond. Three times he disappears under the surface and then he's gone. And there's a keeper standing there just watching. And this one visitor who goes to the zoo one day a year with his wife and kids. He jumps in, and he has to swim under the water. He gets hold of Jojo's body, gets over that barrier, pushes Jojo up into the enclosure. And you can hear his wife screaming, the children crying, daddy, daddy, daddy. And he's coming back to join them. And three of the big males are coming now down, bristling hair, and, you know, screaming, so big teeth showing, and... At the same time, the bank was to sleep and Jojo is sliding back into the water. And you see Rick standing with his hand on the railing, looking up at his family, looking at the three males, looking at Jojo, and he went back. Again, he pushed Jojo up and Jojo, uh, he's not dead, although he seemed lifeless. He spits out some water finally grabs a tuft of grass and with Rick pushing manages to drag himself to safety and the three males just watch. And so that evening Rick is interviewed on radio and asked why did you do it? You must have known it was dangerous. And he said well I happened to look into his eyes and there was a message there. Won't anybody help me? so beautiful. And the other story is the other way around. A chimpanzee uh, rescued from medical research, put on an island in Florida with three females also rescued. Uh, The male is known as Old Man, young man employed to look after them, told not to go near them. They hate people. They'll try to kill you. But he watches. Uh, A baby is born. And Mark sees how old man loves the baby and protects it from real or imagined harm and shares food. They hug each other, embrace and kiss. And he thinks, I must develop a relationship with them. How can I look after them otherwise? Anyhow, eventually, he takes a banana and he goes to the island on one of these little paddle boats. And one day he dares step on shore. And nothing happens. And one day he dares to groom old man. And one day old man grooms him back. And one day he dares to tickle in his tickly shoulder. And old man laughs. <laughs>, 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 <laughs> so everything's lovely. The females keep away. But one day Mark slips, falls on his face. The baby's near, is startled, screams, the mother rushing to the rescue as mothers will. Uh, bites into Mark's neck. He feels the blood drip down. The other two females running to support their friend. One bites his wrist and one his leg. And he's looking up thinking, how can I get away? Now here's old man thundering across the island with his lips bunched in a furious skull and hair on end. And Mark thinks, he thinks I hurt his precious infant. And he prepared to die. But what does old man do? He drags these three females away, keeps them off Mark while he drags himself painfully to the boat. And I met Mark when he came out of hospital. And he said, Jane, there's no question, old man saved my life. And to me, this is really symbolic because if a chimpanzee and one who's been harmed by people can help a human friend in time of need, then surely we, with our greater ability for understanding, can help others in their time of need.
1: So they say every great story is a love story. That's the best love story I've ever heard.
0: You know that saying, we haven't inherited the planet from our parents, we borrowed it from our children, but we haven't, we've stolen. We're still stealing their future. And so coming into the the reality of now and me on this planet and is there a purpose? Am I here with a mission? It feels like it. And my mission seems to be to give people some hope because if you don't have hope why should you bother to do anything so this is where you know I'm concentrated on trying to save life life
1: life are you hopeful that we will as a collective consciousness start to realize this so we can start uh, reversing some of the damage because technically speaking a lot of this is reversible
0: I think there's a growing awareness everywhere, but I think one of the big problems is people feel hopeless and helpless. What can I do? And so the message is that every single day we live, each one of us makes some impact on the planet, and those of us fortunate enough to be not in extreme poverty, we have a choice as to what kind of difference we're going to make. You know, if we think about the consequences of what we buy, where did it come from, how was it made, did it involve cruelty to animals, child slave labor, uh, harm to the environment. All that
1: is now part of our conversation anyway, collective conversation, right? So so we're becoming aware of
0: that. We're moving in that direction. I think we have a window of time. Mm -hmm. We've got to do something about the unsustainable lifestyle of everybody else, certainly me. My lifestyle isn't sustainable. We've got the crazy idea you can have unlimited economic development on a planet of finite natural resources. We have the tools, and it's about language. And we've discussed language and how the use of words has helped us develop an intellect. But the other day when I was out in the forest, um, this I've never seen it before or since, it was an amazing fly. It was the most beautiful colors. It had golden hairs and it landed on my finger and I was looking at it and it's a fly. And I thought, because we use that word fly, we're belittling something that is a miracle of creation. That's it. And if we didn't know what to call it a fly, we would be utterly amazed.
1: What is your hope for humanity now?
0: Well, I think my greatest hope is in the young people because they are changing the world and they are influencing their parents. And so the goal is a critical mass of young people who understand that while we need money to live, we shouldn't live for money. That's when it goes wrong. Second reason for hope, this brain which is beginning to come up with technology that will enable us to live in greater harmony and direct our own lives to lead as light an ecological footprint as we can. The next resilience of nature, many ecosystems that we destroyed, given a chance, can become beautiful again. Animals on the brink of extinction can be given another chance. And finally, the indomitable human spirit, the people who tackle the impossible or what seems impossible and won't give up.
1: Well, you're the best example of that indomitable human spirit. And I'm reminded of a phrase from the great Indian poet Tagore. He said, every child that is born is proof that God has not yet given up on humans. There are so many things that make us human, but part of what makes us human is that which is not human. From wildlife to resources, Dr. Jane Goodall has reminded us today that the natural world is intricately a part of who we are and likely in more ways than we can even fathom. Listeners who are interested in supporting Dr. Goodall's ongoing work should visit rootsandshoots.org, her youth service organization whose mission is to foster respect and compassion for all living things, to promote understanding of all cultures and beliefs and to inspire each individual to take action, to make the world a better place for people, other animals and the environment in some small way. I think she's done that for all of us who had the pleasure of listening to her today. I'm Deepak Chopra. Thank you for listening to Infinite Potential. If this episode connected with you, please share it with a friend and leave us comments so we get to hear from you. In our next episode, we explore the mind of one of the great comedians of our day, Russell Brand. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder. It's edited by Sam Dingman and Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach-Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. I'm Deepak Chopra. Thank you for joining me.